Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession is taken from Proverbs 20, verse 28. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. Here we see that there are two sides of faithful leadership, mercy and truth. The truth is not incompatible with mercy. In fact, they necessitate each other. Mercy without truth is not mercy. It's injustice. Mercy without truth creates a culture of wickedness. Generosity is a good thing. But the problem with mercy without truth is that it is not generosity, it's entitlement. And there's always a victim. If you go around ruling by taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots, simply for the sake of their not having, you are denying biblical truths and consequences about, about consequences and laziness. Similarly, if you have a soft hand for lawbreakers, because you are merciful, you deny justice and mercy to both their current victims and their future ones. On the other hand, truth without mercy is not truth. And this is because truth is defined by God. God is the truth, and God is ultimate truth. Kings are stewards, and their stuff is only held by God's permission. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, You would have no power unless it were given to you from above. Similarly, in Romans, Paul says, There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Thus authority is derived, and kings are representatives of God, who defines truth. And God binds truth with mercy or else none of us would be here. If God were not merciful, Adam and Eve would have been destroyed as soon as they ate from the apple. If God were not merciful, each and every person alive would be destroyed because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Truth without mercy is death, and men cannot function outside of grace. However, put the truth and mercy together, and the king is preserved, and his throne is upheld. And while this proverb is true for kings and rulers and leaders, it's also the wisdom by which all of us are to govern our everyday interactions in society. Because in Christ, we are a nation of kings and priests. When somebody comes to me for counsel and gives me a difficult situation and inevitably follows it with a question like, what am I supposed to do here, or what am I supposed to say? The simple answer is always, speak the truth in love. If the situation is one which demands action, the application is similar. Practice discipline with mercy. Because we are to be like Christ, 
and the Lord disciplines whom he loves. And central to all of this is forgiveness. But forgiveness is not truthless mercy. Forgiveness is taking the hit, forgiving real sin, showing real mercy, and knowing the truth that it's not deserved, but doing it anyway because you love. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel. Last week, Luke set the stage. Peter's in Joppa. He's staying at the house of Simon, who's a tanner. His house was by the sea. Peter's been established as an apostle and as a leader among the apostles. He brought the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. He brought healing to many, and he restored Tabitha to life. And now the purposes of God are about to be revealed. God is going to bring two unlike two unlikely men together in a way that makes this story the hinge of the book of Acts. In many ways this story is the pivot of salvation for the world. God is obliterating the divisions in society. God is removing the barriers and opening the floodgates for the growth of the church in an, in an entirely new way. Up until this point, the church is growing, but it's growing in Jewish circles. The apostles first preached at the temple, then things progressed and the gospel moved to the Hellenists and then to Judea and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were not technically Jews, but they were related and they were connected to Judaism. They, their, their faith was very similar. Uh, they were surrounded by the Jews. They had Jews north of them and south of them. They lived in the promised land. And it was a leap, but the Samaritans were circumcised. And so breaking down that barrier was a smaller barrier than what the gospel is about to do. Then the gospel goes out into the dispersion. To, to the Jews around the world. It goes to Damascus, it goes to Phoenicia, and Antioch, and, and Cyprus. But all the while, the message goes to the Jews. It goes to the synagogues of the foreigners. But Jewish foreigners. And in chapter 10, all that is about to change. We knew this was coming. There were hints all along. Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, and Jesus is talking to the apostles, immediately before his ascension, Jesus Jesus tells them that they're going to be his witnesses and to bring the gospel to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Peter's first sermon, he said, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And then again, in Peter's sermon at the temple, after he healed the lame man before his first trial, Peter quotes God's promise to Abraham. And the promise was, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Stephen likewise highlighted that the fact that God worked outside of Jerusalem, outside of the temple, in, in Ur of the Chaldees, in Mesopotamia, and in Egypt. Philip ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch and the Samaritans. And in Saul's conversion and calling, which we covered a couple weeks ago, Jesus says that 
his calling, he's being sent to the Gentiles. So there's hints all the way through that this is going out. This is going beyond Israel. But Peter is the man who God has in place to initiate the formal outreach of the gospel to Gentiles. Peter's authority as, as the leader of the apostles, his standing, and as we shall see, the witnesses that he brings with him and the visions from God all establish this story in chapter 10 of Acts. And this is important because this story is what our hope is based on. So let's meet Cornelius, Acts 10, verses 1 and 2. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. What an introduction. Luke has done the legwork of establishing Peter as the man to bring the gospel. But now he's establishing Cornelius as the man to be the recipient of grace. Luke doesn't leave any wiggle room here. Cornelius has authority. He's a centurion, a, a leader of a hundred in Caesarea. It was a Roman cohort. It was, they were Italian. It was an Italian regiment. So he was, he was a well-respected authority figure. He's devout. He fears God with all his household. He's got his household in order. He gives alms generously and he prays always. And because he gave alms, and because he prayed always, because that's the kind of man he, he was, his sincerity was very clear. His devotion to God was evident in his continual prayers. And his generosity toward the people was proof of his love for God. In fact, those two things were the two highest spiritual exercises according to Judaism. Giving alms and praying prayers. And so you couldn't ask for a more deserving Gentile. But wait, it gets even better. Cornelius had a vision, verses 3 to 6. About the ninth hour of the day, that's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. So not only is Cornelius an all-around great guy, from, especially from the Jews' perspective, but he's got a vision of an angel and approval from God. God has received your alms and your prayers. He's, he's taken note, and he's given direct revelation of a mission. Go, to, go get Peter. And Cornelius, like the kind of guy he is, responds with immediate and faithful obedience. Verses 7 and 8. 
And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius is a good man, a friend of the Jews, a God-fearer, devout, and God heard him. And Jesus has a glorious message for Cornelius. But Jesus uses means. The angel didn't just say, here's the gospel. That's not what happened. The angel tells Cornelius to send for Peter. And this will have the effect of sanctifying the church because the Jewish Christians needed to learn an important lesson. But Peter needed to learn it first. The Jewish Christians had to learn a very important lesson. And God is, God is doing this for a very specific reason. It's because he does not want division in, in the body of Christ. He, we can't have people that are not one with another in Christ. And we saw this back when we had the Hellenists who were complaining against the, the, the native-born Israelites because their widows weren't being cared for. God gave wisdom. He worked by the Spirit. They set apart seven men to, to minister to the needs of the Hellenist widows. And we saw that, that God used those seven men, in particular Stephen and Philip, to further the gospel and to teach the twelve apostles. But the gospel is for martyrs, <laughs> Stephen, when he gives the, the sermon and he when he's accused by, by the Sanhedrin and he gives a sermon and he preaches the gospel to them. And, the, and, 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 it's, and it's about God working in the world, not just here, not just you, not just the nation of Israel. And, and God uses Philip to teach Peter that the gospel is for Samaritans. And for Ethiopian eunuchs. And Philip walked in and Peter walked in Philip's footsteps even last week when he was going into, into Joppa and Lydda, where, where Philip had already gone through and preached the message of the gospel. So God's using means to give the gospel to the Gentiles, but he has to he has to teach Peter first. And so we see that Peter has a vision, verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Okay, so the sixth hour is, is noon. That's a, right at lunchtime. Peter's going up on the rooftop to pray. And oh, that's another thing. There were three different times of the day that were standard among the Jews to, to pray. So it was, it, was, it was like they would pray at uh, 9 in the morning. At the time of the morning sacrifice, they pray at noon, and then they pray again at 3 p.m., which is the ninth hour of the day, which is the evening sacrifice. And in doing this, they were always in prayer. And the trip from Caesarea to Joppa was about 30 miles. So, so these servants of Cornelius made pretty good time in order to make it by lunchtime the following day. But so it was... And Peter was on the roof to pray, and then this happened, verses 10 to 16. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, 
kill, and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. So Peter has a vision, and it's repeated three times. And there's several things to note here. First is his state of mind. Peter goes on the roof to pray, and then, and uh, and then we hear that we, we read that Peter became very hungry and he wanted to eat. He, he became very hungry and wanted to eat. And then, while they were preparing lunch for him, he has this vision. And what the voice is commanding him to do was something which would have been very tempting for him to do because he was hungry. The voice is telling him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Satisfy your hunger. But but here's Peter's response. In true Peter fashion, Peter rejects the command of the voice. Not so, Lord. We've seen this several times with Peter in his life life with with Jesus. Not so, Lord. And and several times we see the, the repeat of three things happening with Peter. He denies Jesus three times. Jesus asks him if, if he loves if he loves him three times and tells him to feed his sheep. And and so here we have Peter three times hearing this command and rejecting it. Not so, Lord. The command to eat unclean food was unconscionable for Peter. It was not in him to do it. His habits were so ingrained in him that he couldn't believe that God was telling him to eat common or unclean meat. It was inconsistent with what he believed about God. Jesus had taught on this in the Gospels when he talked to the keeping of the outside of the cup clean and, and allowing the inside to get all dirty when he was talking about, when he accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed tombs. Jesus said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles him. Because what comes out of the mouth is what comes out of the heart. And here Jesus is teaching Peter that the gospel is not bound by Judaic ceremonial laws. So the voice's answer to Peter is also to be noted. And, 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 And the voice says... What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Here Peter's in danger of fighting against God. He's, he's disobeying Gamaliel's advice. He, and, and, and then just to get the point across, to make sure that Peter is getting this message, God repeats the vision three times. But now we come to the glory of God's timing in the story of Peter and the messengers. Verses 17 to 20. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So God ordains the times. God sent the vision to Cornelius, and Cornelius, Johnny on the spot, sends his guys out. 
12 o'clock the next day, they're, in, they're, they're at Joppa. Peter's on the roof praying. And, and God has set all these events in motion because he's writing the story. And, and he makes everything beautiful in its time. And this is perfect timing. We see the beautiful conjunction of Peter's vision with the arrival of the messengers at the door. And then the Spirit tells Peter, Behold, three men are seeking you. Go with them. He's, as they're walking in the door. And Peter, Peter responds with obedience. Verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they give him their message. Verse 21, 22. And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. That's quite a message. <laughs> Peter's sitting on the roof trying to figure out what's going on. And God sends him downstairs. He's like, you need some help. Go downstairs. Listen to these guys. I sent them. Hear what they're, hear what they're telling you. Do, do what you're supposed to. And because you can't argue with the Holy Spirit, Peter responds with, with further obedience. Verse 23. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them. And some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So God, God gives Peter blessing in helping him to understand what this vision is about. He said, he said, Cornelius the centurion has sent for you and you're supposed to come talk to him. That's, that's what the message is. And Peter is going to do what God has told him to do. And Peter submissive to the command. But then, whether by design, whether Peter was with it enough to, to think this, because Peter may have perceived that this might create a bugaboo or a hullabaloo or a problem. Or, by God's providence, he brings some of the brethren with him on the trip. And later on in chapter 11, verse 12, when Peter's defending what's happening right here to the Jews in Jerusalem, he tells us that there were six brethren who went with him and accompanied him on this trip. So it was well attested, these events. It was well, well witnessed what happened here. It was, there's no room for question or debate about, about the events. So Peter then meets Cornelius. But Cornelius makes a mistake. Verses 24 through 26. And the following day, when they entered Caesarea, now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. Cornelius mistakenly worships Peter. And Peter sets him straight and then finds that he has a larger audience to deal with. Verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. So Peter's probably still trying to figure out what he's supposed to do with all this. This isn't normal everyday stuff for him. Peter's, this is not Peter's crowd. Peter was from a different crowd. He, this is different from what he was used to. Peter was used to Jews. He was the, uh, the apostle to the Jews. 
His ministry was national in character. His, he, he's been brought here to a Gentile's house, and he's confronted with not only Cornelius, who is well attested by the Jews, who say he's a good man, he prays, he gives alms, he, he, he's generous. And not then, but he walks into the house and he's confronted with an entire audience of family and friends to hear what the man of God has to say. So Peter's still trying to figure out, what, what am I supposed to do with this? So he, so he starts with a question, verses 28 and 29. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? Peter's question boils down to this. Why am I here? And, and what do you expect from me? From Peter's perspective, this is a great way to start. Uh, it gives him a chance to assess what their expectations are and to know where they're coming from. But he has to know this in order to address them. He has to know, okay, you know I'm, I'm a Jew, and you know that Jews and Gentiles don't mix. It's like oil and water. It, it just doesn't happen. And now, I, okay, I grant that God gave me a vision, and I'm not supposed to call any man common or unclean, but why would you call me? What was going through your head? And Cornelius has an answer for him, verses 30 to 33. So Cornelius says, Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. So Cornelius answers him, you are here because I obeyed the very generous and specific vision God gave to me. I, I know that I need something from God, and, I, and, I, and I've been praying for that. And God generously gave me a message, and a very specific message. He said, send for Peter who's in Joppa, at the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. That's why you are here. And we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. I had a vision of an angel. This, is, this doesn't happen every day for me either, Peter. But God is telling me something here, and, and I'm excited. I want to know what, what, what am I supposed to do? What do you have for me? This is, if God's going to send me an angel and have me send three guys 30 miles to go fetch you. Well, tell us what God wants you to tell us. 
And then the stage is set for Peter to preach the gospel to the first Gentile converts. And he opens with these glorious words in his sermon. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now we're going to be studying Peter's sermon and its effects next week. But for now, notice how the light has turned on for Peter. He had the vision. He had the men show up. But it's not until he hears from Cornelius, the horse's mouth, what's going on here? It's, it clicks. The Spirit gives him the words to say. Peter gets it. He sees that God is now sharing the gospel with all nations without partiality. He doesn't show favoritism to Jews. We're going to study that in his sermon next week. God revealed to him now the glorious scope of the new reality of the kingdom of God. It no longer follows national lines. And next week we'll see how this distinction is even greater than anticipated when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit without even being circumcised first. But again, that's... That's next week. But in order for us to get there, we had to get here, in Caesarea, in Cornelius' house, with a willing minister to a receptive Gentile audience. And all of that is the perfect recipe of God's timing for God's work to be done. And there's several things for us to learn from this story. The first thing is that our prejudices are not God's. Our prejudices are not God's prejudices. God doesn't have prejudices. God shows no partiality. Our prejudices are not His, but we are His. Sometimes... God has to take us outside of our comfort zones in order for us to get this. God had to take Peter outside of his comfort zone for him to get this. Sometimes after saying no three times in a row, God has to take us by the hand and show us, okay, this is what I mean, Peter. Go with these guys. The gospel's for them. And of course, hindsight is 2020. Afterwards, Peter becomes the great defender of the gospel for the Gentiles. Peter gets it. But until he gets it, he doesn't get it. So we must be humble in our prejudices, in our opinions. In modern day parlance, maybe this looks like witnessing to someone that we don't expect to want the gospel. Perhaps the poor, the inner city, the media, or college campuses. People that we think are just hard, that would never hear it. Pastor Tim Keller in New York has a thriving ministry in downtown New York. It's a prime example of bringing the gospel where everybody would have expected it to crash and burn. 
That, that's the kind of gospel we have. It's powerful enough to take down strongholds. And God doesn't show partiality. He can change kings and presidents and congresses. But he needs faithful, obedient, and willing messengers. Another thing we can learn from this story is that God ordains the times. God prepared Peter, and God prepared Cornelius and his household. This can be a hard lesson to learn. Sometimes our timeline is not God's. And when our timeline bumps up against God's, God always pushes us out of the way. Sometimes we want to jump the gun. Just, just we got to do it. we got to do this. And Saul was kind of like that. He got into it wherever he went. He, he'd go, he, you know, he'd go, he's, in, he's in Damascus, they're going to kill him, so he has to run away. He goes to Jerusalem, the Hellenists are going to kill him, so he has to run to Tarsus. He had to be sent back home for several years to cool his jets. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, but it was not God's time yet. He had other work to do first. We're going to get to Saul in a couple weeks and the Apostle Paul. And, and when the time is right and when God sends him out, it's amazing. So sometimes we like to jump the gun. And sometimes we're not ready for God to move yet. We, like Peter, God has to force our hand. Like Peter, God said, listen, buddy, there's three guys at your front door. Go with them. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here we go. But the point is that God is in control of the timing. And we must submit to it. When it's his will and it's his timing, it will happen. Not a moment before and not a moment later. The last thing we should take away from this story is that God's vision, while not what we see, sometimes we get visions or glimpses of it. Sometimes he gives us clarity of vision. But God's vision is not our vision, and God's vision is always bigger than ours. Our God is good, and he's gracious, and his plan is better than we can imagine. His goals surpass our wildest dreams. Peter may have been thinking something along the lines of, how am I going to explain this back in Jerusalem? What am I supposed to tell them? The Gentiles? I went to a Gentile's house. That was, that was earth-shattering for Jews. What, what am I supposed to say? But in the end, the end result is it doesn't matter. That's not your problem. That is not your... We don't have to explain God, and we don't have to explain His work or His plan or His timing. That's not our job. God gives us very simple and straightforward 
commands. He gives us a very easy job. All we have to do is what we are entirely capable of doing because he gives us the strength to do whatever he asks us to do. And all we have to do is what we're commanded to do, and that is to witness what God has done. We don't have to explain what God has done. We just have to say, this is what he did. What God has shown to us, what God has revealed to us, the revelation that we have, that's our job. And God uses us in our weakness to accomplish his goals in his timing. And he gives us blessing and glory in this time. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. God's timing is perfect. He ordains everything, and there is great comfort in this. It's on this basis that we can deep down believe the promise of Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And one of the glories of God's timing is that He made us and He knows our frames. So from the beginning He gave us a Sabbath, a day of rest. Once a week we come together to worship to sing and to fellowship and to pray and to hear God's word proclaimed and we come to eat together. And here we are nourished. In this meal, Jesus feeds us in a timely fashion. He reminds us that we are his and he is ours. Like Peter, we need to accept the food God gives to us with gratitude and humility. And like Peter, we need to learn that God's message is for us and for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you confess that you are a sinner without hope, except in the sovereign mercy of God, and that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.